3: If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host.
1: Wow. Nice.
3: Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part, for every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice
2: things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less and similar brands.
4: You know, it's like midwifery, right? And being able to pull out of individuals what they can't push out on their own, right? And I tell this story I, you know, have four children and I was there for the uh, delivery of all four of uh, my uh, children. And uh, my uh, final born child, I had twin boys, Cameron and Caleb. And Caleb, uh, in the delivery room, uh, his twin brother came out, Cameron, and no matter how hard my wife Desiree pushed, Caleb would not come out. I was like, what's happening? She's already pushed out four babies in her lifetime. And <laughs> Caleb was breached. He was turned around, you know, babies come out head first, and they weren't ready for a C-section. And nine minutes after his twin brother Cameron was born, Caleb's vital signs were beginning to drop. And the doctor said, I have to go in and pull him out, right? And pulled Caleb out uh, by his feet. And so many of us leaders uh, who have pushed out great things, but the thing that we are called to really push out that is gonna make a transformational impact on the world, we will never push out alone.
0: I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500 episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Sean, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us.
4: Srini, uh, thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to be here.
0: Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. And I am very delighted to learn that you've actually been a longtime listener, which I didn't know. But I actually found out about your work through two of our former guests, uh, Chris Wilson and TK Coleman. And we will get into all of that. uh, But I was so intrigued by what you're up to. I thought you were doing a lot of really amazing work in the world. And I think that given the nature of your work, I think this is a very fitting question to start with. And that is, Where in the world did you grow up, and what impact did where you grew up end up having uh, on the choices that you've made throughout your life and your career and the work that you're doing today?
4: So uh, I'm a native New Yorker. Uh, I've lived in every borough except for Staten Island, and spent most of uh, my formative years in Harlem and on the Upper West Side of uh, Manhattan, raised uh, by a single mom, strong Jamaican woman, uh, uh, Deanna. And uh, she just exposed me uh, to uh, a a great deal. Right. And so uh, I think, you know, traveling through all of the boroughs, uh, I've had a lot of uh, exploration and uh, my life has just been one of uh, so many dualities. Right. And dichotomies Uh, Mm -hmm. living in Harlem and uh, essentially, uh, you know, being around just so. all black people, right? And then moving down to the upper west side and, uh, it being, uh, uh, mixed, uh, uh, and more, more diverse. And so I think it's allowed me to, uh, navigate, uh, different worlds. And, mm-hmm. uh, I like to say, uh, I think I can effectively navigate both the boardroom and the block city hall and the corner. And a lot of that has to do with just, uh, my upbringing and just traveling and, uh, uh, surviving and thriving in different circles.
0: Yeah. Uh, you grew up with a single mom. Uh, you know, obviously I don't have any idea what that is like, but what misperceptions do you think that people have about that, uh, What do you think the impact has been of not having had a father figure in your life? And just out of curiosity, have you ever connected with your your father? Do you know anything about him? Uh, These are the things that just I'm very curious about because it it seems like such a different experience. And then the other question is so often when uh, children are raised by a single parent, that ends up having an incredibly detrimental effect on their life. And you seem to have transcended that in very big ways. I know because I've read your about page. I mean, you went to Columbia. you You seem to have overcome what would typically be an environment that could actually hold somebody back.
4: So, uh, that's really interesting. Uh, you know, I think narrative, uh, is just a powerful thing and, uh, perception. And, uh, I do think, and particularly in the African American community, right? There's this perception of, uh, if you are raised by a single mom, uh, that is a life of, uh, uh, squalor and hardship and, uh, 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 difficulty. And so, um, Quite the contrary. Uh, my mother, who, uh, is, I guess, the first entrepreneur, uh, and creative, uh, in my life was very resilient and resourceful. And, uh, what was interesting is that, uh, early on, um, she found, uh, someone that took care of, uh, children, right? So we were living in the South Bronx and she found this woman, uh, Lillian Smith, uh, who, uh, took care of, uh, uh, other kids, right? And Lillian, uh, we called her Lel, was a classic, uh, 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 big mom, uh, big mama, uh, pa- uh, matriarch, uh, in the community. And, uh, we grew up on 119th street and Lenox Avenue. And so during the week I was in Harlem and on the weekends with my, uh, Uh, my mother. And, you know, this sense of community is really uh, uh, important in building a community. And while I did not grow up with my father, I was very close to uh, his uh, his parents. Uh, So uh, my grandmother and grandfather on his side, they would, you know, they grew up, uh, they lived in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, and they would uh, pick me up and I would spend weekends uh, uh, with them. And so, I never woke up one day to say good morning dad you know my my, my father wasn't in my life we eventually uh developed a a, a relationship and uh it was more of a, a intersection uh, than uh being intertwined I, I i would say but uh i think it's really important for folks to understand just because uh someone is raised by a single mom um that does not uh uh in, in some cases that's an asset <laughs> <laughs> right uh looking at my story from behind uh you know backwards uh i think it was an asset that uh i was raised by a a, a single mom and uh, the resourcefulness that uh she she had and, and what's really interesting i'm an i'm an only child right uh, i do have a half brother and half uh sister uh my father eventually uh he did get married um and had twins and what was really interesting, I had this duality of both being a single, uh, um, uh only child, but, um, growing up with, uh, Lau during the week, she took care of, uh, a bunch of other, uh, uh kids, right? There's this movie out there. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen it called Lackawanna Blues by Hill Harper. And, uh, he grew up in this boarding house and Lao had a bunch of boarders and, uh, she also, uh, ran numbers and uh Srini, i don't know if you're familiar uh with uh the numbers system but it was uh an underground economy uh in the african-american co- uh, community where um like today there's uh the lotto and the uh, powerball and the mega millions uh, in the african-american communities across the country uh there was uh the numbers and uh she ran numbers lel who was uh my godmother uh, with the father of a notorious, uh, Harlem, uh, uh drug lord, uh, by the name of Nicky Barnes. And so his father, Roy Barnes. And so there was a lot of activity and a lot of folks coming in and out of the, uh, house. Uh, the borders, uh, one border, you know, lots of stories and characters. Uh, Mr. Archie, who was, who also lived in the apartment. This is one of these old Harlem apartments. There were like seven rooms, uh, uh in the, the apartment. He was from Barbados. He was a Bayesian. And uh Mr. Archie's story was no matter what the number was that day, whatever those three numbers uh were, when Mr. Archie came home, if it was 475, you can guarantee Mr. Archie was going to say in his uh Bajan, uh dialect, 475, I was going to play that number. And so I had a very rich uh and robust childhood. Uh yes, all around me there uh there was drugs, uh there was there was uh, uh there was violence uh uh but there was still a sense of uh growing up uh in the uh, uh 70s and you know uh late 60s in Harlem, uh, a sense of community. And yeah. that if I did something a block away um, on the corner of 119th Street and 7th Avenue, uh, there was a sense of ownership and community. And, uh, you know, the adults knew who I was. Oh, that's one of Lel's kids. Right. And so if I got in trouble and I was doing something I wasn't supposed to do, uh, adults in the community felt a sense of ownership and they would reprimand you. And by the time I got a block away to uh, where I lived, and this was long before a text or a, a DM or, or social media word traveled, right? And so I got reprimanded uh, uh, outside. And when I got home, I got reprimanded. You know, I uh, tease and say that, you know, I have a PhD from uh, UCLA, and uh, UCLA, for those that know Harlem, uh, is the university on the corner of Lenox, uh, Lenox Avenue. And so uh, my mother uh, just has had an, a you know, powerful impact. She's taught me sacrifice. Uh, we uh, moved together full time um, at fifth grade uh, when we moved down to the Upper West Side. And, you know, one of the things it was a one bedroom apartment. And she gave me, you know, her twelve-year-old son the bedroom, and she slept on the uh, pull-out couch, and uh, just saw her be resourceful and uh, just. So, I think it's really important that folks don't misunderstand that just because someone has a single uh, uh, parent, uh, that that is a negative or uh, or, or detriment.
0: Yeah. So I, mean, I think that the interesting thing is you mentioned that you uh you know were Around an environment where there were drugs, there were violence. And I imagine that there are probably people who uh, I come from, you know, the neighborhoods that you grew up in that ended up on a very different path. And so there are two questions that come from that. You mentioned that your your mother is Jamaican. Was she first generation? And if so, I I wonder, you know, what impact being an immigrant had on the way that she went about raising you? Because I think that when you grew up in an Indian family, particularly, you know, our parents, like we're probably semi-close in age based on, on kind of what you're telling me. And my parents came here and they had nothing. It was literally, we're starting from scratch. And they had a very clear way of, of sort of educating us and, and making us go through the world, which was, you're going to be upstanding citizens of society. If we have anything to do with it, you're going to be, you know, more than that. <laughs> and so, so I wonder, yeah. uh, you know, about the immigrant aspect of it, but also then, you know, why do you get somebody who ends up, you know, the way that you do, despite being in a neighborhood like that? And then why do we have somebody like Chris Wilson? Uh, who comes from a neighborhood like that.
4: Well, you know, what's interesting uh, is that there's a Chris Wilson uh, inside of me, right? Just, uh, part of my Chris Wilson story is uh, my story, not to the extreme. Uh, I uh, was never incarcerated, uh, but uh, got caught up in the drug culture, and uh, you know, this September, I'll have uh, 30 years clean without a drink or a drug, but um Growing up where I grew up, it was almost hard to escape, um, those challenges, right? And I was just fortunate and blessed that, uh, uh, my story didn't turn out exactly like Chris Wilson's, a uh, uh, story. So, uh, it was, it was not like I was unscathed, right? So, but I think the, uh, the point about the, uh, immigrant family and my mother coming from Jamaica and what was interesting is that her mother, uh, came here first. And, uh, then my mother, uh, uh, came, uh, to, to the States and my mother's very independent. She was a, a flower child, uh, 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 hippie type, very independent, but education was paramount. Um, and, uh, she just, uh, Instill that uh, in me, and one of my memories of growing up is that my mother always had books uh, around the house. Right, there were like uh, to the ceiling high bookshelves, and I was just surrounded uh, uh, by books. And uh, I remember, uh, you know, picking books uh, off of the bookshelf and looking as a in my early adolescence and looking for uh, the steamy sex scenes uh, uh, in the book, but the love <laughs> of reading. Uh, was uh, was uh, was always uh, uh, there and when you think about education and decisions, uh, you know, a, a transformational moment and decision that my mother made, right? So when I moved down to the uh, Upper West Side, uh, I went to this middle school uh, called IS44, which is right across the street from the Museum of Natural uh, History, right? And uh, transferred from a school in Harlem uh, that was all black to uh, a, a diverse school, and Asians and, and, and uh, white kids. And, and uh, after sixth grade in IS44, you had to make a choice between or you can make a choice between major math and science or major gym. Yes, major gym. And I remember when the permission slips uh, came home because all of my friends and all of my homeboys were like, yeah, we're going to major gym, playing soccer hockey tournaments and, and and all of that. And I remember coming home and uh, giving my mother the permission slip for me to uh, for seventh and eighth grade to be in major gym. And she looked at me and said, you have got to be out of your mind. There is no way you're going to major gym and you're going to major math and science, right? And so for Uh two years, I had a big resentment with my mother because all of my friends, um, and we talk about racial equity, um, the dynamic was most of the black and Latino uh, students were in major gym. Most of the Asian and white students were in major math science. It was just amazing how this uh, turned out, right? And, uh, you know, a lot of it, not by uh, accident. And so while I was uh, dissecting frogs and uh, messing with a Bunsen burner, uh, my friends, uh, and this was like on the same floor, but different ends of the hall, right? Um, Different qualities of teaching. And um, I had a resentment, you know, that, you know, I couldn't hang out with my friends. And then when it was time to graduate, um, and go on to high school, all the students from major math and science were going to specialized high schools in New York City, like Stuyvesant and Bronx Science and Brooklyn Tech. I went to Brooklyn Tech. I thought I wanted to be an archi- uh, architect, and I had to actually go to summer school because I missed the exam by one point to get in and all of the students from major uh gym were going to the neighborhood high schools and Many of them turned out fine or lived successful lives, but the chances and the exposure, and I saw that, God, in retrospect, there was a track and then. But that was a decision um that my mother made, right? Because if it was up to me, I would have been in major gym. And there's so many decisions like that, Srini, over my life that uh, others have made. And um, I've been blessed to have, an amazing cohort of mentors and and, and and people that saw something in me before I saw something in myself. And uh, so education was uh, really independent. My mother was a risk taker uh, and she exposed me to a lot. Uh, every summer, starting at six years old, uh, I was shipped off to a summer camp. Uh, the Fresh year Fund, um, and was exposed to uh, uh, different things. And, you know, uh, when I was uh, in my sophomore, no, my junior year of high school, uh, I was involved in this youth program called the Dome Project uh, on the Upper West Side, which had just an amazing um, change in my life, the trajectory of change in my life. My mother allowed me to, uh, during my... uh, spring break, uh, do a project and take a bus from New York to California to visit youth programs in California. And by bus, me and another young man uh, went and other parents were like, you're allowing your uh, son to go across country on a bus? And my mother was like, yes, you know, it's going to be great exposure. And uh, so it was things like that, the risk taken that I think I, I inherited Uh, as well. You know, there's one other thing I wanted to say about my mother is that my mother and father who were never married, but they were both dancers and uh, that's how they met. Right. And uh, that's how I was conceived. And, uh, uh, my mother was a a great dancer, and she was also a great seamstress, right? And uh, for a time, she made my clothes. You know, uh, I have pictures of, uh, you know, so when I grew up, I had a big Afro uh, like Michael Jackson, and she <laughs> uh, would make my clothes. I have pictures of me in a powder blue jumpsuit. That uh uh I won't post because it would be very uh uh I would be ridiculed and damn it. Um, I was gonna
0: ask you to let us use that as your album cover
4: for <laughs> the unmistakable under- yeah, same- yeah, yeah. You know, and, and But the thing about it, what she did was, and I learned to sacrifice as I shared earlier, how she uh uh slept on the pullout couch in the living room and gave me the bedroom. Uh wow. my mother Decided to not pursue her artistic talents and and passions and gifts in order to uh, raise me and to work. Uh, She wound up working 30 years for the federal government, uh, and she sacrificed a lot uh, uh, for me, right? And um, sometimes, uh, or too often, uh, parents don't do that, right? And so Mm -hmm. I I, I thank my mother uh, uh, every day. Uh, for that. And I just recently uh, had my 35th college reunion uh, at Wesleyan University. I didn't go, I couldn't go, but they had provided me with a service award uh, just for my, uh, you know, the work that I've done since graduating. And, you know, and I sent that to her and said, you know what, uh, I'm not putting this on my wall, you know, on my wall, right? Uh, this belongs to you. And there's uh, just so many um, things that I've done over my career. If it were not for her, and my mentors and this whole sense of community around me uh, never would have happened.
0: Wow. Uh, So many more questions. So, you know, I think that one of the things uh, that I I noticed uh, when I was looking at your website was you talk about this idea of, you know, giving, uh, a voice to people who have been marginalized. And we'll actually get into what your work is about. Uh, but I want to talk about this idea of being marginalized and, and how you define marginalized, what it means. And and, you know, what does a person who comes from a place of privilege not really understand what it means to be marginalized? Because I think that, you know, at this point, you know, Sean, both of us are living lives of privilege. I mean, you're a graduate from Wesleyan in Columbia. I went to Berkeley and I have a pepperdine MBA. We'd be kidding ourselves if we lied about the fact that we're approaching this life with a level of privilege that other people don't have and may never have access to. And, you know, part of why th- this particular, that definition of marginalized came up for me is because of, uh, you know, I think you, my guess is you've probably already seen it since it's in the news, uh, the, the documentary or the, the film about the Central Park Five. You probably yes. were grew up around that time, right?
4: Yes, yes indeed. I lived uh, like Four blocks away, I lived in Towers on the Park and 110th and Frederick Douglass Avenue. And uh, the young men, uh, they lived uh, four blocks away on Fifth Avenue in uh, Schomburg Towers. And yes, I remember that uh, in 1989 when um, it happened. And so... Uh, Ava just did a marvelous job telling and giving life uh, uh to their uh, stories and so when we talk about privilege and when we talk about marginalization um you know we have to go to the roots of uh this country and the 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 the, the founding fathers and uh the uh in a sense the schizophrenia that this country uh, is based on, right? And on one hand, uh, values of uh, the land of the free and the brave and uh, the pursuit of happiness in one hand. and uh, But on the other hand, uh, the country built um, on the legacy of slavery and white supremacy and uh the spreading of an ideology that one race and and and, and color is better than uh, uh than the other right and so when we talk about marginalization uh today in twenty uh nineteen uh we certainly have to put it in the context of the last four hundred years. Of uh, of uh, this nation, and I certainly believe that there are uh, a levels of of privilege, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, I certainly. Uh, and that's when I have five questions that I ask the leaders that I'm associated with, right? And, uh, one of those questions, uh, is, you know, what are you doing, uh, about your privilege, right? And, uh, yes, I do have a certain level of privilege, uh, being a man, being a black man, uh, graduating from an institution, uh, like, uh, Wesleyan University, uh, but if I'm pulled over, uh, by police officers, uh, there is nothing that is flashing on my forehead that is a scorecard of that privilege, right? right. That privilege goes out the, uh, uh, out the window, depending on the, uh, uh, context. And I just think that, um, this nation and, and we're just like, uh, still has to reconcile, uh, its roots right yeah. it its its roots of uh, violence and 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 uh slavery and that that continues uh uh today and so there are so many policies and structures and systems that ensure uh that poor people right and and, and many of whom are uh, people of color uh stay poor and stay marginalized, right? And so I think that, uh, that's why I have this inner compass of, uh, doing the work, uh, uh, that I do, leading the campaign for, uh, black male achievement. And, you know, one of our mission, uh, uh mantras, uh, is that, you know, there's no cavalry coming to save the day, uh, in our communities that, uh, we're the iconic leaders that, uh, we've been waiting for, the curators of the change that we're seeking, uh, uh, to see. And what I have seen in my career, what I've seen in myself, uh, adversity uh, has become an asset, right? And being able to bounce back uh, from racism and uh, being able to do that as an individual is one thing, but uh, doing, being able to do it as a, a people is a fight that we are still, uh, still engaged in. And yeah. One of the things that I think is really important when I think when I say, you know, we're the iconic leaders that we are waiting for, um the most marginalized people in not only this nation uh, uh in the world, uh just have I believe we all have genius, right? And and, and that we all have a, a brilliance and uh the resiliency. That I have witnessed, um, despite the structures and the systems and the racism of uh, particularly black people and black people in America, is uh, phenomenal and it's uh, 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 in- inspiring, right? And so... Uh, one thing is, uh, and I've done this through my career, is certainly being an advocate and a champion and uh, lifting barriers and uh, uh, creating platforms of opportunity for marginalized populations. But even more so than that is providing the relationships and resources for folks to uh, become champions of change Uh For themselves, you know, there's this Mm -hmm. whole notion called uh, the power of positive deviance. And what the the power of positive deviance lets us know is that the solution to the world's most intractable problems resides in the hands, the heads, and the hearts of those that are experiencing um, the oppression. Right. And I've spent part of my career in philanthropy. And sometimes in philanthropy, we take on the persona that we are paratrooping into com- communities with prescriptions and uh, solutions. And the truth of the matter is that the solutions and the prescriptions for change. Resides in those communities already, right? And so there's this whole notion, and Brian Stevenson talks about this a lot, right? He mm-hmm. was on the uh, board of directors uh when I was at the Open Society Foundations, this power of proximity, and that the folks that are closest to the issues and the problems are the ones with the most innovative uh, uh, solutions, right? But resources are really uh, important. And we talk about marginalization that uh, we're talking about uh, uh, political marginalization and education and social, but uh, economic mobility and uh, access to uh, uh, resources and looking at America's wealth gap is um
2: underwritten by golden rule insurance company they offer flexible budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals get more cool facts about united Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com wow
3: nice yeah what you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on bomba socks underwear and t-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds
1: Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST.
2: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
0: Yeah, you know, so there's so many things that I want to ask you about this. You may have heard the conversation that I had with Desiree Attaway. We were talking about the intersections of race, class, culture, and gender. And we're talking about, you know, how each of us defines racism. And I think, you know, one of the things I said is it it reminds me of this moment when I went to the Museum of Tolerance in L.A. where they have two doors and one door says that if you don't have any biases, walk through this door, if you do walk this door. And the one that basically says if you don't have any biases, walk through this door is locked. It doesn't open, Uh, which is a really interesting Metaphor. And I, I mentioned this to her, like it, what was, you know, even, even growing up, you know, my parents are are far from racist, but there was almost this, like, you know, there's like among Indian people are, are we're kind of like, okay, the litmus test of your parents' racism is bring home a black girl, or a Muslim girl, and you'll figure out how racist or how tolerant your Indian parents really are. Uh, mm-hmm. those are our two extremes for them. Like those are, you know, those are like, literally you're kind of like, I could bring anybody home, but that would be kind of a litmus test. Uh, Despite how open-minded they claim to be, and so I wonder, when you were young, and also as as you've gotten older, what were your first experiences with racism? How did you define it, and and how has that changed with age? And you know, don't you think it's a little insane that two, three hundred years after this country is formed, we're still having this conversation?
4: Well, yes, I do think it's insane uh but i think that the the construct of uh racism is uh i think based in <laughs> uh an ideology of insanity to uh think that a uh um class and color uh, of people uh are superior than uh another uh, a a race of, of people right i i think you know genetically we have more in common uh than we uh <laughs> uh have have, have differences yeah. and what was really interesting about my uh upbringing was that you know i was uh exposed to um and i talked about this dichotomy um this Different, um, you know, and I think my mother was really intentional, uh, about this, right? And so while, uh, going to grade school all the way to fifth grade, you know, uh, my classes and most of the teachers were all black, right? Uh, but when I went to summer camp, uh, it was, uh, it, w- it was mixed. And, uh, and I would say that, um, the, you know, race was always, uh, uh, an issue. Right, but it was a source of pride, and 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 you know, growing up, and uh, uh, Muhammad Ali was uh, my first hero, uh, and seeing a, uh, a black man say that I'm fast, I'm pretty, and I can't possibly uh, uh, be beat, and uh, to be bold as he was gave me a sense of uh uh, uh, pride. Uh, I was uh, very young. I was uh, just six years old or going on six years old, but I remember in Harlem uh, the uh, riots and uprising after Martin Luther King was uh, uh, assassinated, right? And that memory uh, uh, sticks in my head. There was a, a Woolworths on 116th Street and Lenox Avenue and being able to look out the window and uh, uh, seeing people running in and out of uh, uh, the the Woolworths right and so um I don't think that it's insane to still be having this conversation today because I think that we live in a system that is designed to perpetuate uh the conversation and to perpetuate uh the oppression of uh, uh of black and brown and and, and, and poor poor people and until we reconcile and 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 disrupt that system and that ideology uh we are not uh we're going to still be having the same issues just just yesterday uh there was congressional hearings on reparations yeah. and um <laughs> someone sent and posted a uh, a snapshot of and I don't think you know I think that we have to stay open to all parties right uh but when we looked at one side of the aisle, uh, of Congress, most folks didn't even show up to, uh, listen or engage in this, uh, um, uh, discussion. Yeah. And so power and wealth, uh, is not, um, easily people think that you know in order for you to win i have to lose right and i just think that that's just the equation and the way uh the system has been designed in the united states and right and um you know i a couple of summers ago right so uh i the summer of 2016 uh, even then, uh, up until that point, I, I lived and clinged to this sense of idealism that uh, in my lifetime, uh, things would change, uh, in this country. And I remember within a week, uh, there was the murder of Alton Sterling in Baton Rouge, Louisiana by police caught on videotape. Uh, A week later, uh, Philando Castile, outside of uh, Minneapolis, uh, caught on a Facebook Live. He was murdered, right? Legally carrying firearms, right? And I had to uh, force myself to say, you know what, Sean? Racism is not going to end in your lifetime, right? Uh, This summer we are celebrating uh, in Hampton Beach 400 years uh, uh, since uh, first enslaved Africans were thrown to the shores, right? So here we are 400 years in. And yes, on one hand, uh, there has been progress. But at the end of the day, um, black and brown people are still uh, oppressed. And me coming to this realization, you know what? It's not going to end in your lifetime. On one way, it was disheartening. In in another way, it was a relief and permission for me to like, you know what? Do what you can while you are here. Pour into leaders, leave a legacy, and that you are part of a chain and and link and a lineage of uh, amazing uh, ancestral uh, uh, lineage that do what you can while you are here. Right. And so that's what I've committed my life uh, uh, to. uh, And that's why I lead the campaign for a a black male achievement. And it is really based in um, just the uh, premise that there is nothing wrong with black men and boys uh, in this country. It's the uh, systems and the structures and that. Uh so much of our work is about shifting the narrative and focusing on the assets and uh potential and possibilities of uh of of black men and boys and and, and the black community. And that being able to uh and this is why I like just, you know, being on this podcast and so much of the work that we've done over the years has uh, been investing in uh, film and investing in podcasts and arts and culture and being able to, what I like to say, become masters of our own media and tell our own stories, right? That there is a uh, another side than what is projected uh, in mainstream uh, media. And look, uh, when They See Us, right, uh, by Ava DuVernay is a classic example of the power of, uh, of media and our ability to have platforms to tell our own stories.
0: Well, you're speaking my language. as part of the reason I do what I do. Yeah, you know, I think that, you know, it's fitting you brought up the Ava du- DuVernay and when they, when they See Us. So, you know, we're talking about the idea of being marginalized. So, what I wonder is for how different that situation would be, you know, for a group of people who aren't marginalized, like how much of being marginalized is what put those kids in that situation to to have them end up in the situation they did?
4: So I don't know if marginalized, uh, is the proper context and framing, right? Uh, I think that, uh, when we look at race and the fact, that these were five black boys. Um, and when we look at uh, the, the the victim, a, a, a white woman, uh, there is a long history in this nation, right, uh, of uh, black people and black men um, being uh, railroaded and falsely accused. And so marginalized, marginalization has something... Yes, to do with it. Right. But I do think that the fact of race and that these were five black boys and would they uh, have been treated the same way, uh if they were five white boys. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would venture to say no. Uh, you may have seen just this last week um, in uh, Phoenix, uh-huh. Arizona. Uh, and, you know, I, I want to give a shout out uh, to the bravery of folks that are able to, in the face of danger, pull out their uh, phones and, and, and capture videotape of uh, these injustices. But you may have seen when uh, the police uh, with weapons drawn uh, with a report that a four-year-old took a doll out of a dollar store and um, how they assaulted and came up with guns drawn, a woman uh, with a baby in her hand and pregnant. And would that have been done? If they were not black, maybe, but I doubt it, right? And, and I'm not going to say that that does not happen, uh, but I just think that the humanity of, uh, of, of, of black people, uh, in the United States, and there's a widespread ideology that, uh, we are less deserving, um, that, um, we are threats and uh, that uh, we don't have rights and we can be treated any other way, which is absolutely a, a, a lie because we have a, a long history of liberation fighters, right, that uh, say, no, you can't treat us any uh, uh, other way. And the uh, when they see us, chronicles that Story right, and yes, there are other factors of uh, uh of poverty and legal representation being able to uh uh you know uh if you have and can afford uh the uh, best lawyers right uh that that you know wealth has a uh impact, but at the end of the day, uh, I think it was less about them being marginalized and yeah. being five uh, 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 uh black boys and a case that had to be solved.
0: Hmm. So you know I want to uh spend some time talking about the work that you do at the campaign for uh, blackmail achievement uh, you know I had a chance to look through your website and I guess really, what I want to look at is maybe particularly look at a story of somebody who's come to you and kind of the impact, and which I'm guessing you probably have dozens, um, probably to the point where we should probably have one of them as a guest on the show. Uh, but I, I wonder, you know, could you walk us through an example of of you know one of these youths that comes to you and kind of you know maybe somebody who was headed down a wrong path and and you know how you help course correct?
4: Sure, and I think it's uh, important to note that. So the campaign for Black Men achievement we were launched uh, at the Open Society Foundations, uh, which is the philanthropy of George Soros, back in 2008, and we were originally supposed to be a three-year uh, campaign to improve the life outcomes of, uh, of black men and boys. And uh, what's uh, interesting to know, too often in philanthropy, uh, we look at uh, generational and centuries-long issues and. Say we're gonna solve this uh problem in a three or five year uh grant making cycle and uh the mere fact that we've been around uh for still for eleven years uh is a testament to so many folks uh spirit of entrepreneurialism uh uh, persistent uh, relation, relationships. And, uh, so we started off as a grant making entity and, um, over the last 11 years have, uh, funded and supported and helped to launch, um, strategies across the country. We've invested, uh, close to a quarter billion, uh, dollars, right? And CBMA, our focus uh, is really on the leaders and the organizations that are working to improve uh, life outcomes of Black men and boys. And uh, that's men and women. It's uh, uh, multi-gender, multi-race. And folks think of the Campaign for Black Male Achievement. Uh, We have uh, over 8,000 individual members and half of them are women, right? And so there is, I think of uh, someone like uh, a Willie Hamilton, uh, who runs the uh, United, uh, uh, Black Men United in Omaha, Nebraska. And, you know, we all have this sense of, you know, a need for belonging. And Willie, uh, eight years ago, said to me when we were in the foundation, look, I don't want to uh, necessarily get a grant from you. It would be great. I just want to be a part of the Campaign for Black Male Achievement. And by him coming to one of our events, you know, we do an annual gathering at the Muhammad Ali Center called Rumble Young Man Rumble. Uh, And he represented uh, his city and he was connected at this convening with 150 other leaders from across the country. And he realized that, you know what, I am not fighting this fight uh, alone. Like, I'm not building and battling alone. You know, one of my uh, mission mantras is that God gave us two hands for a reason so that we can build and battle at the same time. And so much of this social justice, uh, uh, racial justice work, we got to do both. We got to build and we have to battle. And uh, he returned back to uh, Omaha and declared that, you know, uh, he was part of the campaign for Black Male Achievement and with his organization and began to get others in his city uh, engaged. And so there was this ripple uh, uh, effect, right? And so while it's a national movement, the change really happens uh, locally, right? Uh, It happens in in, in places. And uh, we say that, you know, uh your promise of place which is our place based strategy is wherever you decide to uh, uh uh take a stand and there are so many leaders like Willie Hamilton and the young people that they uh work with across the country that are exposed to this national movement and that they are the next wave of uh, or the current wave of uh social justice uh leaders you know one of the things that uh brings me uh, joy, uh, we, uh, have an opportunity to bring folks across the country to our, uh, convenings and our gatherings and to, uh, see a young man, um, like Ernest, right? Ernest Butts, who was a fellow, uh, uh, at the campaign for black male achievement. He never, uh, he was never in a plane you know he never flew before and uh 2 years ago was his first flight going to Louisville uh Kentucky for uh the um, Rumble Young Man Rumble and it was kind of like the Roger Bannister mile, right? Once he broke that four minute mile and he had that exposure, uh, he's in Puerto Rico, uh, this summer and, and, and organizing and supporting folks that are still recovering, uh, uh from the uh, hurricane. And he did some traveling last year. And so much of this work, uh, I like to, and so much of my mission, it's, uh, about, uh, you know it's like midwifery right, and being able to pull out uh of individuals uh what they can't push out uh on their on their own right? and I tell this story i you know I have four children, and I was there for the uh delivery of all four of uh my uh children. And uh, my uh, final born child, I had twin boys, Cameron and Caleb, and Caleb uh, in the delivery room, uh, his twin brother came out, Cameron. And no matter how hard my wife Desiree pushed, Caleb would not come out. I was like, what's happening? She's already pushed out four babies in her lifetime. And... <laughs> Caleb was breached. He was turned around, you know, babies come out head first and they weren't ready for a C-section. And nine minutes after his twin brother Cameron was born, Caleb's vital signs were beginning to drop. And the doctor said, I have to go in and pull him out. Right. And pulled Caleb out uh by his feet. And so many of us leaders uh, who have pushed out great things, but the thing that we are called to really push out that is gonna make a transformational impact on the world, we will never push out alone. We need to get vulnerable and be able to say as leaders, and particularly when we're looking at black men, to be able to go to another man and say, or woman, and say, I have something inside of me and I need your help to pull it out. And I'm grateful that I've grown up in a generation where I've seen a shift uh, around masculinity and gender norms. Uh, My father and grandfather uh, to cry uh, was a sign of weakness, right? To be vulnerable was a sign of weakness and, and, and to be afraid and to let somebody know that you were afraid, uh, was a death, uh, sentence in, in, in some cases. And, uh, we are with the campaign for Blackmail achievement and so many of our partner organizations are in a space now where this whole notion of addressing toxic masculinity and patriarchy uh, is something that is acceptable and necessary in our community. And one of our members is a guy named Jason Wilson out of Detroit who has a best-selling book. We just told his story. He'd be a great guest. Uh, it's called Cry Like a Man. Mm. And just really demystifying this whole notion of uh emotional uh sturdiness and not being able to share uh uh emotions. And I and Srini, i I tell the leaders that I'm associated with if you are not engaged with a mentor, an executive coach, And a therapist, (laughs) you are at a disadvantage, right? And this whole notion of uh, addressing and pulling the covers off of mental health uh, in our community, uh, I'm just seeing so much more momentum over the years around this because to be black in America, uh, as James Baldwin uh, uh, said, and I'm paraphrasing, is uh, almost to be in a constant stage. Of rage, or a constant constant state of rage, and so we need to be champions uh, and be able to share our vulnerability as black men, and to say, you know what, it is okay. You know what, you don't tell a eight year old boy, "Don't cry and act like a man." He's eight years old. He's supposed to cry. It's okay to cry, and so what I am seeing um, just across the country uh, with so many of my peers and the next generation that it is okay to be emotionally uh, uh, vulnerable. And part of our work, uh, we launched uh, three four years ago BMA Health and Healing Strategies, where we are addressing the health, healing, and wellness. of the leaders. So many of our leaders came to us and said, I am depressed. I am stressed out. I have been thinking about suicide. And we said, wow, uh, this is the cavalry, right? These are the leaders, the hometown heroes and local leaders uh, that we are invested in to do the work. If they are traumatized how are we going to win? And so, uh, we have just seen, um, so many, uh, investors, um, uh, over the last few years, um, say, you know what? This issue of healing and wellness, um, is important. Uh, there's a Dr. Sean Jenright, uh, in uh, San Francisco that, uh, has really been crusading this notion of, uh, in centered communities and schools. Uh, and so, I, you know, I'm encouraged. Uh, you know, I often, uh, when I look at the condition and the state and where we stand as Black people in this nation, uh, I often uh, say it's the paradox of promise and peril because there is both a, a, a peril that is still perilous in this nation. Uh, for uh, a black man, but I also see so much promise. And I know that you've done a lot of work around, you know, where you put your attention, right? And where you put your focus, right? Not that we ignore the peril, not that we ignore the liabilities, but we focus on the promise and the assets because I firmly believe that what we focus on uh, grows and we have to tell that story of uh, of promise and love and, and 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 how we lead and uh if we don't tell that story uh somebody's gonna tell the story for us.
0: Uh, amazing. Uh well this has been really, really uh just a treat and uh, eye-opening, thought provoking, one of those conversations that I think really makes us think it and hopefully brings about you know uh the start of, of a conversation for a lot of people that I think is much needed. Uh so uh, I want to finish with my my final question, which I know you've heard me ask uh, as a long time listener of the show. And that is, what do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
4: Well, you know, I, I knew you were going to ask me that question too. <laughs> right. But so, um, what makes you unmistakable is that a few things that when you die, your eulogy is such of how you lived your life, uh, what you represented, and the values that someone hears your eulogy, and your eulogy becomes their life's epilogue. And I think that being unmistakable is that we are he- called to do things that if uh, they are not done, through you and by you, they won't be uh, uh, done at all. And that there are things that people look to and people hear, and they say that is distinctly uh, uh, Sean Dove, that is Sean Dove's uh, 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 fingerprint, and that no one else could have done that uh, except for him.
3: Mm.
0: Amazing. Um, Well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and uh, sharing your story and and your insights on all of the work that you're up to with our listeners. Where can people find out more uh, about what you're up to? And also, are there any requests that you have for our audience that they can help with, uh, you know, in terms of your own efforts?
4: Sure. So I can um, be reached at, um, go to my website, um, uh, blackmaleachievement.org. um, I personally, uh, can be reached, uh, at sdov at blackmailachievement.org. Uh, that is, uh, my, uh, email address. And, uh, I am on Twitter and I am on, 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 uh, Instagram. And, um, I believe that, um, this is not, uh, when we talk about blackmail achievement, um, black America's, uh, journey right? Uh, this is America's, uh, journey, right? And so there is something that everybody can do, uh, no matter gender or, or, or race. And, uh, uh, I would ask folks to go to, uh, our website and, uh, become a member, um, and join, uh, the Campaign for Black Male Achievement. Uh, there are ways that you can devote your time, your talent, um, and your treasure, uh,